everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get into the topics of the day? Yes. Are you a human who enjoys doing hard things? Have you had some fun doing them? Well, that is the case for the guests that I have on my show, Choose the Hard Way. My guests are top performers across a broad variety of disciplines, including a lot of people from the world of cycling. So come check us out. Choose the Hard Way is everywhere you listen. And at choosethehardway.com can find me on Twitter and other places at HardwayPod and at Vons. And as you might have noticed, Spencer and I have been experimenting a little bit. We're doing some dual guests who we have on both this podcast and on my podcast, Choose the Hard Way. On mine, we get more into the behind the music and life story. Here we go deep on the pro cycling aspect of things. So come check us out. Yeah, we recently did that with Benji Nassen. I thought it was a very cool concept where you can kind of split off each topic and then people can listen as they need to. I hope we can do that in the future with a few other cycling-specific guests that we have uh, hopefully coming up. Yeah, definitely. And everybody out there listening, if you enjoyed it or if you have other ideas or if there are other things you'd like to hear Spencer and I cover please give us a shout. We're on Twitter. I'm at Vance. Spencer is at BTP Cycling. I'm also at Hardway Pod, but drop us a message or you can email me at choosethehardway at gmail.com. We'll love to hear what you would like to hear. So since we've recorded, since we've recorded with Benji last week, a lot has happened in pro cycling. Uh, I'm just going to quickly, quickly recap it. So if you aren't, if you have a life and you're busy doing other things, you know what's going on. But Right after I asked Benji, is Tom Pickock regressing? Does this guy suck? What's going on? He crushes everyone at Strada Bianca. Looked amazing. Attacked from a long way out. Kind of oddly similar to Tade Pogacar's win last year. Maybe not. He didn't quite pull the gap out that Pogacar did. There was problems with the Yumbo-led chase group behind. We'll get into that. Pickock wins. Um, in the women's race, Demi Vollering beat her teammate, Lotto Kopecky, in a pretty interesting bike throw sprint finish where they... Uh, past Kristen Faulkner on the final climb. We'll talk about that a little bit. Perry Nice started on Sunday. Torino Adriatico started on Monday. These are two dueling stage races, one in dreary France, one in Italy that looks amazing. It's it's like an it, Perry Nice, I feel like is an inverse advertisement for northern France. The first half of the race is so depressing. As they get closer to the Mediterranean, it looks nicer. Perry Nice features Jonas Vinegard versus Tadej Pogacar. Uh, Pogacar's really just been beating up on everyone there. Uh, just getting time bonuses through the early sprint stages and then really doing well in that team time trial, which we'll talk about the kind of interesting little wrinkle they had for that. And then dropping everyone on the climbs at Torino. Philippe Ogana put maybe the most impressive time trial performance I've ever seen in. He averaged 34 miles an hour, I believe, for the opening time trial. It was really wild. Primoz Roglic has hairy legs and is beating everyone. Mark Cavendish is not good. Um, Andrew, just off the top, Julian Alphilippe, what is going on here? At Strada Bianchi, I, I on my uh, predictions podcast with Johan Verniel, I was like, oh, watch out for Alphilippe. He's underrated. He's going to be awesome. He was terrible. Like You didn't even really see him. He, he couldn't compete to even get in the winning move. And then today at Torino Adriatico, if anyone was watching, he breaks the race up with 34K to go. And I think, wow, like, Philippe's back and then he loses in the sprint finish to Roglic and you're wondering why did he break the race up I thought he was racing for a teammate I, what is going on at Quick Step I can't figure out what is going on inside this team 
Yeah, Spencer, a lot of podcasts, a lot of recordings. I actually don't recall <clears throat> what I said on on this podcast about Strade Bianche. I also thought that Philippe was going to win the race. That was my pick going into the race. And then, like you, I was like, what's going on with this guy? And then seeing what happened today. Um, and I know we talked in the episode with Benji about the mind games that are perpetually going on with Patrick Lefebvre inside of Quick Step, the fact that they're moving in the direction of attempting to build a GC team and you know whether they can do that is to be determined. I don't know why I'm thinking this, and I, I mean this in the best way possible, but I feel like at this stage in his career, Philippe is like Thomas Volkler if Thomas Volkler was a generational talent. And <laughs> it's very true. It's it's really right? similar, actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, he pulls faces. He's always like making the faces in a way that kind of makes you want to, at least for me, that that's a bit of a turn off as a fan. But at the same time, this guy can turn himself inside out and do some amazing things. Obviously, a lot of questions about coming back from his multiple horrendous crashes. What does he look like going forward? I still think he's got some big rides uh within him but definitely not a consistent performer which was another thing i was uh, i was thinking about this with uh what we see going on with vinigo and pagacha right now and the idea you know 10 years ago we would have said man if guys are going this well in march there's no way they're going to be winning the tour in fact they would be at an altitude camp we wouldn't even their nose wouldn't see the wind in a race until may probably and now the expectation is just you're going wire to wire all out. You're winning everything that you enter, which just seems like an absurd expectation. But that that is now our expectation that if you're a top talent in the sport and you enter a race, you're going to win the race. Right. So when we see uh, Wout sitting at the back of an echelon the other day and, and not pulling, which also had a strategic element, or we see Philippe having an uneven performance. I mean, who knows? Like maybe these guys got a bad night's sleep in the uh, Sophie Tell where they got jammed or, you know, got a bad plate of watery pasta. Like, I don't know. What do you think, Spencer? It is. Yeah, it is a little like, well, didn't contest the sprint on stage one at Torino. Or sorry, stage two. Now he's a loser. How dare he? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, you're right. It used to be. Remember, Chris Froome would like barely be able to ride a bike until June, you know, like he would be okay at the Dauphiné. It's, it is maybe an unrealistic expectation. Like I'm thinking Jonas Vindegaard, the funny thing though, through this, like Jonas gets crushed by Tade, like in every non-Tour de France race. This is not an outlier. And he always looks like he's having trouble with both stress, the moment and the race, and then shows up to the tour and just never really ever seems to have a problem. So Maybe Vindegaard is just doing this the smart way and everyone else is an idiot for being fit all the time, being at 100% fitness. I, I do wonder, I mean, you mentioned Alaphilippe being a little inconsistent. It's like this Alaphilippe, like the erratic, he's, he gets very erratic sometimes. And I do feel like we're seeing more, him more erratic. It's kind of like Remco. Remco behaves his behavioral scale, like the worse, the worse he behaves. The more I worry about his form, the better behaved he is, the more I think he's in shape. Like Philippe will kind of, he'll act out almost like a little child, like a three-year-old where it's like, oh, he needs a nap. He, he's really acting out. And like that, that attack today was so weird. Like why blow the race up 
when you want to win the stage, it doesn't make any sense. Clearly, the fitness is there. I mean, he nuked the race and then finished second behind Roglic. So, as you say, like the guy is probably fine, and Strada, we shouldn't look too much into the Strada performance, but I just wonder how consistent he can be and if, if that fits at Quick Step. I kind of think maybe Johan Bernil said it or Benji, one of those two Belgians that. It's like this is this is French team behavior. Like he needs to go to Total Energies and like this is perfect for them. You know, win a right. tour stage, win one classic, and like that's your season and do that for three years. And I just don't think it really fits in at Quick Step, which seems to be struggling in races that does not have Rimco Evanapol. One more rider I want to ask you about. Tom Pickcock looked great on Sunday or Saturday at Strata. I'm thinking, man, this guy's gonna win every every one day race, but as you mentioned, a little early, like, can you really be in shape for eight weeks? Came to Torino, bad time trial. You're like, whatever. Like, he's not contesting the overall. Got dropped today um, when Al Philippe attacked. Didn't look very, did not look good. And then caught back on, and then him and Wout Van Aert crashed. They got tangled up and crashed. They'll probably be fine. They didn't look too hurt, but just that inconsistent, you know, the inconsistent form does make me wonder, like, can these guys really hold it? You know, it's, it's eight weeks basically until the age and almost all of these big riders want to compete from now until the age. Is that possible? I don't, I don't think it is. Yeah. I was never a Megadeth fan, Spencer. They were clearly an inferior band of Metallica. And if anyone followed the history of Metallica, Dave Mustaine was a guitarist in Metallica before he got thrown out and then went into Megadeth. He subsequently developed a pretty massive cocaine and drug addiction. Then he kicked that. And in order to do it, he got into skydiving. So he was just jumping out of planes <laughs> all the time. I'm only bringing this up because I wonder with a writer like Pidcock, there are just certain things that he does behaviorally that I love watching. And as a fan, make him an incredible writer just to get to see perform when he is really on. And again, we were talking about this with Benji, but the Tuna Canyon descent that he did uh, in that YouTube video, which seems still to me seems ill-advised, but this guy loves going fast downhill. He loves taking risks. He's an extremely skilled writer and he lives for those big clutch moments when everything is on the line and things could potentially go completely side sideways. So he's got like a bit of a Dave Mustaine thrill seeking quality, but he's really more of a Kirk Hammett. Like he is, he is a consummate shredder when he is on a bike I just wonder with what we're seeing from him and some of this inconsistency, is some of that planned probably? The performances we're seeing this week, I, I don't know. It just seems like maybe it's his head fully in the game all of the time when it needs to be is something that I wonder. And what potential vector of risk does that introduce? And something I worried about watching Strata and also watching Pidcock's descending video is... I mean, I hope this doesn't happen, but given his propensity to take things to the absolute edge, particularly on descents, is that going to end badly at some point in training or in a race? Well, as I said last week, I mean, Ineos, no problem of that, right? They've right. never had a catastrophic injury to a, to a star rider. It probably <laughs> isn't. I also should add, well, if they, maybe... <laughs> if they put a bus on that course, then we know what's going to happen. Yeah, like, bus or... It, Team car maybe runs him over. Um, <laughs> I, 
Yeah, but uh, the descending helped him definitely on on Saturday. And I should add, maybe he's just tired, and that's why he's not good this week. Like that's very possible. But I do wonder, like the thrill seeking. Like he's clearly a rider who kind of rises to the moment, lives on adrenaline. We've talked about him potentially being a Tour de France contender, a stage racer. It would seem to add up, like the individual components. But that's not really the mentality of people who win stage races. Like if you're maximizing every second of every race, that's, that's not how you win grand tours at all. Right. And I feel like Pagacha has a tiny bit of this quality. He's a guy who loves to win whenever he can. He's got gameness. When I see him doing some of, I mean, if Pagacha decides to leave professional cycling, this guy's got a big future in miming, I think. Just some of the pantomime we see him do. <laughs> like he's he's like breaking the fourth wall, turning it over to the camera, like doing jokey stuff. He did it in uh in when he was attacking Vindigo yesterday. It's kind of it's kind of funny. Then he does wonder, it when he's getting dropped by Vindigo. Yeah. Does yeah. it when he's getting dropped. Keeps going um, your heels. Yeah, but I mean, I think he had a great tour last year, even though he didn't win numerous stage wins, but some of those stage wins, as we talked about during the tour, probably sapped his legs a bit and took away some of the things that um, could have put him in a position to win the overall. And again, when these riders have any kind of lapse in concentration, it just doesn't bode well for their prospects in the moments when they actually do need to focus. And to go back to Philippe for a second, when you take a look at his crashes and, you know, really easy to say for somebody who apexed is a uh, cat three and used to do practice crits in Kansas city and a Budweiser beer distributorship parking lot. But, um, some of Alif, some of Alif wrecks, they're just not the kind of wrecks I would expect from a writer of his caliber. They're, they've been like pretty catastrophic and they seem like they're positional errors at moments when other riders in those races don't get jammed up and they're able to ride away. And you just have to wonder, you know, can he have the monotonous but maniacal level of focus and concentration that you have to have for whatever 500 or six hours, 600 hours of racing to get through the season and to perform in those big moments without catastrophic injury. And I mean, that's just another thing we've seen with quick step in the last two weeks, a lot of their riders just getting jammed up and, Again, very easy for me to say, but from the outside and Rex that they shouldn't be in because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, there's no better example of this than him riding into the moto in the 2020 yeah. Tour of Flanders. Just ran, just rode straight into the back of a motorcycle, probably when he had the form to win the race. It it does uh, does often seem like he has something else on his mind. But like when he's like, think of the 2019 Tour, totally locked in, one of the best performances I've seen, you know, in the last five years. And then when he does have these bad crashes, it does seem like he's just, his mind is elsewhere. It's wandering, like almost like an ADHD situation. And that quick, for an example, so quick step at Strata, they're leading from like 70K to go until 50K to go, basically until Betty all attacks. I just wonder, what is the plan there? Do they think Al Philippe is the strongest rider? And if so, are they, is he not communicating to the team what's going on? And then, Pickock and Betty all get off the front. Bagioli goes with them from Quick Step. Bagioli's never winning out of that group. But then Quick Step stops blo- starts blocking in the group and basically delivers Pickock the win because they blunt the chase. 
what is going on inside? I, I just can't quite understand what's going on inside the team car there. They think, oh, this is good for us. Bagioli's away with Tom Pidcock. Well, that's never going to work. So it, it seems like maybe they're on autopilot a bit. Just they're stuck in the, the Boonin era of like, okay, rider in one rider in three rider move. That's good for us. We can win from this. Just doesn't feel like they're adapting or totally plugged into like the modern one day racing landscape. And that does seem to surface with Philippe appearing not focused in a lot of these races. I don't know this, Spencer, but I'm sure you or Johan do. Do we have the same? I mean, I know Ilyo Kessa is now, what is he, a sports director? What is he on Quick Step? I think he's a, a director. It's odd because a lot of the, well, maybe that's part of the problem. Like a lot of the personnel hasn't changed. Like they have yeah. pretty, pretty consistent management, but maybe that's part of the problem. Like they're just running the same playbook over and over again, but they don't have the personnel to do it anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was wondering if maybe we have somebody different in the team car in some of these races. We've seen, if you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff from Quick Step, or there are, uh, there are a couple of, I don't know who makes the documentaries, but there's a behind the scenes documentary from Tour of Flanders every year. It's on YouTube. Have you watched that at all, Spencer? No, is it like a Flanders produced documentary i think i think it is it's long and it's excellent and i believe they do it every year but it, uh there's been yeah just a lot of good footage from inside the quick step team car so this is going this might be a dead end i'm just wondering hey do we potentially have different directors in the car this year or not is there anything going on there and with some of the erratic performances that we've seen from Philippe, i agree with you maybe a French team is a better fit. And another question that I had for you, Spencer, is paradoxically, while we're kind of doing a bit of trash talking of French teams at the moment, I also feel like there are more French riders who are performing at an extremely high level than ever before in the entire time that I've watched professional cycling. And I'm wondering what's going on there. Is France the new Slovenia? This is a great Great segue. I, just, I wanted to talk about this. Is France the new Slovenia? Yeah, just a small country with actually really no cycling history. I do, I do see this country as an up-and-coming yeah, force. No, I mean, these French riders, yeah, they just seem to be coming out of the woodwork and are amazing. Uh, just let's start with Valentin Madwas at Strada. Like, I'm watching this guy. It's like maybe 60K to go. Crashes. I mean, we all know this feeling. Crashes. You get back on the bike, the race is on, and you're going. You're you're just barely moving. You know, you're just like getting back up, going. You're at this point hundreds of meters behind the race. Like even catching back on seems impossible. Not only does he catch back on, he gets in that elite chase group, and then he gets a pretty dominating second place. Like everyone was debating, oh, should Walter have worked for Tej Benut so Yumbo could have pulled back Pickock and then won the race, but. My big question is, how were they ever going to beat Madwas? I mean, this guy looked unbelievable. And I think if they would have pulled back Pickock, Madwas wins that race. And then he has his teammate on FDJ. Wait, no, Madwas is on. Yeah, FDJ. Roman Gregory. Do you know this guy? I'd never heard of him before, uh, like a few months ago. He's 19 years old. I think he finished ninth place at Strada. I mean, that's an unbelievable result. It is an unbelievable result, and we've Eight talked place. about this a, a bit in the past. What's interesting about France is France has severe 
criminal penalties for doping. And I mean, that's part of why I personally have a high level of belief that writers in France are the most likely to be the cleanest writers because you will actually go to jail if you're caught doping, at least from my understanding of, of French law and what we've seen happen in the past. So it's really remarkable to me and a good sign for the sport that we're seeing this generation of young writers coming up that are performing at an extremely high level and you know, look like they are going to be a significant force in the future. I mean, we haven't seen like a Vinigo, uh, Pagacha level writer yet, but yeah, a crop of writers who are in late teens, early twenties that have extremely high potential. I'm just, I'm looking at, um, uh, Paris Nice GC well, right now. Look at I'm this. Seeing, yeah. David yeah. Good dude. Six seconds back. Right. And he's up there for two reasons. The team time trial, which you think, man, like they did not, they did not have like what I thought was a great lineup. They get fifth, fourth place, fourteen seconds behind Yumbo, which basically came with a team that can only time trial. Like actually, right. Vinegard's pretty isolated and not well supported through a lot of these stages. That's really impressive. And then today, so he was ten seconds back after yesterday. Gadu was the only rider that could stick with Pagachar on the climb. Um, they went into it with, I believe, Demar. Let me make sure I have this right. So, yeah, they go into the intermediate sprint. DeMar gets in front of Pogacar, kind of pushes him, overlaps her wheels and pushes him into the barrier. Gadu comes around and gets the, tens, or the six second time bonus, I believe. And Pogacar gets nothing because he's blocked and everyone else is sprinting past him. So now they've cut the lead from 10 to six seconds. I mean, Gadu's in the in the mix at Paris Nice. I don't think it's crazy to think that he wins this race overall. It's just really impressive from that whole Groupama FDJ setup. Yeah, definitely. I'm also again looking at Paris Nice GC. Got two Americans in the top ten. I saw Nielsen Palace got dropped yesterday really, on the climb, which really surprised hard. me. I mean, great rider, but again, like going back to that theme of consistency and. I'd love also would love to hear your take. We've seen some pretty outstanding results from EF early in the year here. We did have that Betty all crash at Strata. Um, I'm not quite sure what happened there. Do you have any clarity of, about what happened in that wreck? Is it, it just pushing it on the descent? We didn't see it. It was a straight descent. I mean, I, we both know that I guess on gravel descents, you know, anything can happen. It's not crazy to crash on a straight gravel descent. I think he kind of said after the race that Magnus Sheffield just kind of rode into him and they crashed. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, but who knows? No one will ever know what really happened, but I would just chalk it up to gravel descents at 60K an hour. Would, it, it's not wild to think you could crash on no, that. It's no, not, it's not wild to think that. Um, but yeah, I'm seeing a lot of French flags here in the top 20 GC for, uh, for Paris Nice. Kind of orthogonal to this, I on the equipment side, <laughs> I've really been watching carefully to see, you know, who's going the taco route, who who's like got the rotated end brifters, and who has a more traditional setup. And looking at bikes at both Paris Nice and uh, Torino, I've noticed that. Okay, first of all, today is rotating. He's got rotated end brifters now. If anybody's been following the news, this was this was uh, an interesting one to me as a communications professional who's done a lot of crisis and reputational management. Apparently, 
Boonham was talking some shit about Colnago bikes on Sporza and claimed <laughs> he claimed that they were two kilometers per hour slower. <laughs> and like well, I, I I mean, it's just it was some <laughs> outrageous, outrageous claim that you would have no way to substantiate, but he made this broad sleeping sweeping claim that uh Colnago bikes are not fast. And he was like, you know, yeah, definitively they're two kilometers per hour slower than any other bikes, which would make Pagacha, an even more remarkable rider. Um, yeah, how I'll fast is, is Pagacha if his bike is yeah, that slow? He's actually a superhuman. And Spencer, you and I were texting about this earlier in the week. Uh, I've been taking a look at some vintage uh, Perry Roubaix footage. In the years that Boonin won, I think he was on 48 centimeter bars. I mean, they're like, it's like this guy's riding an enduro bike. It's. <laughs> It's nuts, but I guess he is now the expert on aerodynamics and the efficiency of equipment. I bring this up because I never would have known about this had Colnago not made uh, They had a long written statement that they put out in English that was then immediately picked up by all cycling press. <clears throat> so inadvertently, they created this situation where I never would have known about this. I don't think any people in English English language uh, countries would have heard about it, but they have now put on the record that one of the greatest riders of all time has basically said they have really slow, shitty bikes. And they've invited Boonin to come to Italy to ride their bikes, um, I guess, to prove that they're fast. I don't know how that would prove that they're fast. I just want to say if anyone from Colnago is listening to this, I think your bikes are cool. Spencer and I would be happy to come to Italy and ride them and explore whether they're fast ourselves. And this is, you know, I'm going way out on a limb here and we'll go into this deeper on a future episode. Specialized has a wind tunnel and they release a lot of data about their own bikes. Other brands do, I think, a lot of fluid dynamic analysis for their aerodynamic claims. But there isn't any third party validating any of these aerodynamics claims because there's no financial incentive. There's not like a consumer reports of a bike frame. So we actually don't really know which bikes are fast or not, but we know that there are bikes that are being ridden by very fast riders that win or, or don't win. So this claim from Boonin was an interesting one. Colnago, I think, handled it really poorly. And we are happy to come to Italy. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> our podcast pretty fat felt pretty fast. Um, we, I mean, we've said I think on this podcast that Colnago bikes are probably some of the worst bikes in the peloton. I think that was the older models, like when Tade just started winning. Their new bikes, I'd say, look pretty good. I, w I would at least say on par with other road bikes. What's the funny thing about Boonin is he's saying, oh, they didn't keep up with the super aero stuff. Well, Tom, your company specialized who is he still employed by specialized or is I have no, I have no idea. He now his, his new thing is the classified internally geared hub that lets you ride a 62 tooth front <laughs> yeah, chain ring like talk. Victor Campanerts, which I want to talk about because he has yeah. his own YouTube channel now. I'm intrigued by the concept. I thought in practice, it maybe was a little bit too big of a gear, but Specialized junked. They had this Devenge, which was their aero road bike. They junked it. The Tarmac, I, I mean, it looks good. People like it. I don't think it's one of the more aero bikes on the market. And my big thing is the wind tunnel is awesome. Great marketing expense for them. 
you know, computational fluid dynamics, I think can just do the same thing. You can just simulate it all on a computer. The thing with the wind tunnel, I think it's more about getting the rider position because think of what's the biggest thing on a road bike. It's the rider. It's your skin suit. Getting your position dialed is more important than the bike, which is actually, it's just two small triangles. I mean, it's important maybe in a time trial on a road bike. I don't know how, I think it's more about your position on the bike and can you lower your CDA. Like Remco Ebenepoel could be on a trek from 1999 and it'd still be pretty dang arrow just because his body shape is so arrow. I think that's the more important thing. I, I can't imagine these road bikes are making that big of a difference. It's it, One is kind of like the other at, at that level. Spencer, how dare you? <laughs> I, I just think the wind tunnel is it's great marketing for specialized. I don't know how much it really helps. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know if you watch Belgium Waffle Ride Arizona last weekend. There's a an Instagram handle. I think it's called Unroad Unlimited. Did you this watch is, the whole thing through the stories, or did you have yeah. a feed of? No, I just watched it. I just watched it on stories. I don't think that they actually did a live feed of it. The storytelling they did on Instagram stories. I think is some of the best coverage I've seen of a gravel race. And from what I could tell, it was just a guy with an iPhone that was in the lead vehicle. And he was just kind of sticking his arm out the window and then talking about it. But actually, it it was pretty compelling. I bring it up because one of the things that I thought was interesting from an, an equipment point of view is that Keegan Swenson is on a the Santa Cruz I'm not going to remember the name of the model. It's the Santa Cruz cyclocross slash gravel bike. It definitely is not an aerodynamic bike. I think the frame design hasn't been updated. And I mean, that frame came out when I was quote unquote, seriously racing cyclocross. It was like 2015 maybe. And he has exposed cables and his competitors are all on fully concealed cable bikes. I was like, how is it it's how is it possible he's beating Christopher Blevins in this you know finale with all this climbing they're moving at a very high speed yet he has exposed cables this is apostasy i just don't it's almost inconceivable that he's winning with those <laughs> those cables exposed i i think maybe we i think in like a high speed sprint you know like we've seen you know like the sprint today at Perry Nice Olaf Kai beats Mats Pedersen and Tim Merlier. Those guys, like all those top sprinters are just like right next to each other. I think, you know, if you're going 70, 80K an hour in these sprints, exposed cables, you know, maybe would make a little bit of a difference. I think outside of that, or a time trial, I think when you're in a pack and I don't know how much of a difference exposed cables are really making, you know, if, if right. you could avoid them, it'd be good. I think you could still win Belgian Waffle Ride with exposed cables. All right, this is hot off the presses. So I have two exclusives that I'm going to share with Beyond the Peloton listeners right now, if that's okay with you, Spencer. Oh, yes, please. All right, so I just had two pieces of information come in while we were recording this podcast. Um, I will have to confirm this, but I just wanted to let you know that I have confirmation that Tobin Ortenblatt is going to be coming on the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Tobin is a top U.S. cyclocross gravel mountain bike racer. He was racing at Belgian Waffle Ride, Arizona. He was on the same bike as Keegan. He had exposed cables. He may have, actually, he may have been running shrimp, so he may not have had exposed cables. 
Uh, but I'm going to talk to Tobin and see if we can get him to do the old one-two punch alley-oop because I think it'd be fun to have him on to talk about the uh, gravel racing scene. And I also just got an email from Kristen Faulkner, who's going to be coming on Choose the Hard Way, and I'm going to connect with her and see if we can get her on here as well because um, I definitely you know, think it would be fun to go deeper on Strata and, and what's coming up in the rest of the season. It's funny about Kristen. She emailed me. I think she was still working in private equity and like wanted to be on the podcast. And I was like, I guess like she's I don't, like, she was like technically a pro cyclist, but I'd never heard of her before. And then she came on and then like a week later, she's like top 10 planners. I was like, yeah, Oh my God, how about that? she's yeah, really so good. Things have changed uh, a little since then. So maybe it'd be fun to have her back if you're up for it. Yeah, no, that'd be great. I want to ask you about this before you have to go. So women's Strata Bianchi, Kristen Faulkner, great long range attack. Um, behind Demi Vollering and Lotto Kopecki, both on XD, SD Works, both probably two of the best riders in the race. Um, Kopecki, no, Vollering's off the front chasing Kristen Faulkner. Lotto Kopecki's her teammate, bridges up to her. I, that's a little like dicey in my opinion. Like, should you really be bridging up to your teammate or should you, should you be sitting back letting your teammate chase? They catch Faulkner on the final climb. Vollering probably would have caught Faulkner anyway because that final climb is so hard. Vollering tries to pass Faulkner on the right. She is coming left to right across the road, but whatever. It's like, it's a hard climb. You can do whatever you want. The people behind have to respond. Vollering puts her hand on her on Faulkner's hip, tries to push her over. Faulkner says no, kind of slams her against the barriers, makes her goes around. What's your thought? Like, let's just unpack that for a second. What would you have done if you're Kristen Faulkner in that situation? Would you have let Vollering through or would you say, no, you're not coming through? If you're behind someone's elbow in a bike race, then they don't need to let you by. I agree. I think it's a little... Maybe I'm mistaken. I think it's illegal to take your hands off the bars and touch someone. Yeah, you definitely are not supposed Especially to. inside the final <laughs> You're definitely not supposed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I mean, I actually was, if I was Faulkner, I would have punched. I would have been pissed. It's like, what are you, like, putting your hand on my hip, asking to come by? No, you can't come by. This is a yeah. really important moment of the race. Valerian and Kopecki are fresher, so they drop Faulkner. It's kind of, you get to the top of this really steep climb. It's maybe 150 meters, slightly descending through Siena into this town square to finish. Vollering, I guess, thought that Kopecki was going to give her the win. It's not clear why. Kopecki starts sprinting. Vollering realizes, oh no, I'm not going to be gifted this win. Chases after pretty, pretty cool, uh, like pretty interesting bike throw, high tension. Looks like Kopecki wins, but Vollering actually wins when they go to the photo finish. They're pissed at each other after the finish. Not good vibes inside that team. What's your take on that? Like, should Vollering have been gifted the win? It's not clear to me why she thought that would have been the case. Yeah, I don't know why she thought she would be gifted the win. And, you know, I haven't gone back to, I'm looking at the coverage from the finish. I also want to give a shout out, shout out to Matthew Mitchell, who is a writer for Pro Cycling UK. He published an excellent piece this week, the title is What Exactly Happened Between Lada Kopecki and Demi Vollering at Strada Bianca. And he gets deep into this. He looks at television coverage and interviews. Um, and what, you know, you could overhear some of what was said between them. 
at the yeah. finish line. Ballerine screams right? a bad word at her teammate. Yeah, <laughs> she, calls, she calls her an effing blank. Yeah, and uh, or I guess she said that to her Swanee. Anyway, there is there is high tension. Apparently, there was no agreement. This was like an Eno Lamont type of moment, in my opinion, where I don't know whatever agreement they had. You have two of the very best people in pro cycling and they have a finish line in front of them. What struck me as really odd when I read this, uh, this great piece from Matthew Mitchell was that it sounded like Vollering was under the understanding that because she got to the top of the hill first, that Kopecky was going to just let her win. Like that was the, and I was, I'm, I mean, I'm not a, a world tour cyclist, but I've never heard that one before. I've never heard that. And <laughs> she was just, if you want to dr- drop her, then. Yeah. Kopecky like, was just kind of comfortably on your wheel. I, yeah. That was a strange, I thought that was a strange justification. Yeah. That was really weird. There are also a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking about Faulkner's break. Did it make sense or not? Did she have a chance of winning? And I would say, just look at Pidcock, right? As you noted in when we were messaging each other, about this race, Spencer, the winning break in this race tends to go from about 50 K out in the men's race. And, um, so yeah, like a solo breakaway and trying to hold your margin, rolling the dice on things behind you, not coming together in a way that brings you back seems to be the best move that you could probably make. Yeah. And And it's really hard to position on that gravel. And if you're not in good position on the descents, it just shoots right into steep climbs and you can easily miss the move. I don't think Faulkner would have made that winning move had she not have attacked. Yeah. I know there's been a lot of debate in the world of pro cycling journalism in the last year about access to riders. And at times there have been some journalists in this space who feel almost like a human rights violation has happened because they can't just walk up to whatever rider they want to walk to, want to talk to at any moment in time and have unlimited access. And if if you've um, done a lot of work with professional athletes, pro sports, or even high profile people in other domains of life, that's simply not how it works. And unless they're public officials, and even if they are public officials, you know what? People just often, they, they don't actually have to talk to you. So part of the art of being a journalist is figuring out how to get the information that you want to access. So I also wanted to give a shout out to Andrew Hood, a very um, long time authority in uh, pro cycling journalism, but he had a great piece this week where he picked up the phone and he talked to the DS who was in the car uh, for Enios and asked him, Hey, like what went down with Pidcock's ride? And the DS walked him through, okay, this is exactly what happened and got the DS's read on the race. Cause there were moments when it wasn't clear at all that Pidcock was going to win. It was a roll of the dice, such an incredibly exciting finish. I was watching it with Sam and Ava, uh, my four and six year old, six and four year old. And gosh, like what an incredible finish. And the only reason he run won the race in addition to his descending, which is what the Enios DS pointed out as the margin of victory was that that chase didn't come together. And just as there was like some weird team tension going on between Kopecky and Vollering in the women's race, uh, we had Tease Benut and Attila in the men's race 
had some weird stuff going on. Uh, there also have been some good stories that take a look at, okay, like what exactly was the miscommunication there? What did you, what was your read on that, Spencer? Did they just completely blow it? Yumbo is usually such a well-oiled machine. I think they did not. The only reason I'd say they didn't blow it is because I don't know how they win. And maybe that's why it looked weird because A, they were racing like they they were in the lead. You know, it's like, we got to get one guy. You only do A, B attacking if you're the lead group because you're going to slow your group down. You're not going to catch the guy in front of you. If right. you want to run the race, you got to catch the guy in front of you. So that was a mistake. I mean, one of them should have, if one of them's going to sit on and the other one attacks, you need to be at the front because you're not going to pull back a rider. Tom Pickock smartly probably realized case groups in modern cycling, it's like dividing a number by half, wanting to get to zero. You know, they got within seven seconds of them and you think, oh, they're going to catch them. But it's almost like the closer they get, the harder it gets to catch him because then everyone in the group thinks we're close to him. Someone else is going to work. I don't want to work. I don't want to do the last effort to close this down. So in modern cycling, you're, the, you're an advantage being out in front. That was smart from top Peacock. I guess in theory, Attila Valter could have just ripped it on the front, closed it down to set up Tej Benut on the final climb, but Tej Benut can't sprint his way out of a paper bag. I don't understand how he would have won. He's never beating Madwas on that finish. It's just not happening. Another idea I heard is, you know, there was a point where Walter bridged up to Benut in a group of three and brought Quinn Simmons and another gentleman with him, Matej Motorich. And I guess that is a no-no technically, but let's just say Walter sits on Simmons and Motorich's wheel. Benut's up in that group. You know, I heard, oh, well, Walter could have rested. They chase them down eventually. They, they catch Tom Pickock, Walter attacks and wins the race. Well, I, the problem with that is I think if Walter doesn't bridge up, the only reason they got anywhere close to Pickock was because of Simmons and Motorich pulling. If those guys aren't there, I mean, Benut was up there with Rio, Rio, Rui Costa, who's never pulling ever. So they're not going to pull back Pickock anyway, unless Walter bridges up. So I just think there weren't a lot of good options. They did screw it up. One of them should have worked for the other one. The problem is you need a sprint if you're going to win out of a small group. And if you don't have a sprint, you have to get away clean. And they clearly weren't able to get away clean from that group. So they didn't have a lot of good options. I mean, they could have gotten second instead of third. Do they really care about that? Probably not. Yeah, I don't know. Another notable thing from the, the Andrew Hood piece, perhaps not surprisingly, but Pidcock was on tubeless. So... There's been all this back and forth in recent years uh, with Enios in particular. You know, are they running latex tubes with clinchers? Are they running tubeless? Are they running tubulars? But it appears, at least on that parkour, that tubeless was the way to go. And they saw that as a technical advantage. I have to imagine everybody was on tubeless. I think everyone's on so. tubeless. I right. did see someone's tubeless tires blow up yesterday in Mary Nice, just riding along, blew off the rim sealing everywhere i don't know if it's a systemic issue but it was not a great advertisement for tubeless yeah man i can't imagine particular being on alpine descents and being on tubeless tires that would just be unnerving yeah i guess that's the way it is now i guess everyone's is it it's kind of slowly happened over the last three years i don't think anyone's on anything that's not tubeless 
I don't know. I would want something that it was physically glued <laughs> to my rim <laughs> if I was going to get a flat on an Alpine. I know, I know. Yeah, so, that's what right? I really like about the tubular is if you flat, it's not going anywhere. But yeah, I also just want to put it out there that if if anybody needs a large box of Belgian tape and Victoria Mastic One and some paintbrushes, I have one sitting in my basement. Uh, give me a shout at Vance at Hardway Pod on social. You know, maybe we can work something out. I'm out of the tubular game <laughs> myself. So Spencer, two other things I want to throw out there because I know we both have to bounce in a minute. One, Zwift had its third round of layoffs announced this week. So that's the third time in a year that it's cut its workforce. I love Zwift. I think it's a fantastic product. It can be technically challenging to use that, I think, and I'm hoping they smooth that out. Um, but a theory that I have is like we've seen my whoosh which is backed by the uae sovereign fund i believe kind of silently in the background has i haven't tried it and i don't know if i can get into the beta even but it appears that it is a replica of zwift and it is funded by an organization with bottomless pockets that has no hardware investment so i'm wondering if over time my whoosh silently puts itself in a position to eat Zwift's lunch if Zwift continues to have challenges. That's my one of my hot takes for today. It it looks good. I thought you were crazy. And then I looked at like demos of my whoosh and it looks better than Zwift. My my only concern is that my whoosh is focused on racers and Zwift is focused on non-racers. That's probably a better business strategy, but I do I I was not worried about Zwift. I'm officially worried about Swift. All these layoffs. I mean, I use Swift. I love it. 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 I feel like it's getting glitchier, which is not a good sign. And usually, when you are laying people off, your product doesn't get better. Um, I hope they make it. I'm having concerns. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to throw out there. Love to hear your take. Would love to hear from listeners. But I think that Torino has the best trophy in professional sports. And if you're not familiar with what you get for winning the Torino stage race, you get Poseidon's Trident. Is there anything that could be cooler than that? Like a, a life-size Poseidon's Trident to put over your mantle or fireplace at home? No, no, there's nothing cooler. And people who are like only mildly into pro cycling, like if I mention the race, that's the first thing they mention is the Trident. It's definitely working as a promotional tool. Um, I would say the Tour of Switzerland's orb is on the other end of the spectrum. Perhaps the worst trophy in all of professional sports. They need to reimagine it. And what's the equivalent if you're out at the Valmont Wednesday morning cyclocross practice? I have to imagine there's something like the Trident that you get to take home if you win. I, I don't... You should get like... A, like a mining axe. I, th I mean, I don't think that's what they give you, but that's what I would recommend they give you. Maybe you get a specific kind of uh, polish for your lifted Mercedes Sprinter van. <laughs> exactly. I did win like a Sonicare toothbrush on a Boulder group ride once, um, wow. which is yeah, still using it, by the way. But you couldn't <laughs> think about that. It's like a multi-hundred dollar prize to win on a group ride. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I beat Tom Danielson for it. Oh, thanks. You beat Tom Danielson for the toothbrush? Oh, yeah. It was a flat sprint, though, so uh, not, not Tom's specialty. Okay. I think that's a great place to uh, wrap it up for today, Spence. 
All right. The, the Danielson heads are going to be after us in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I am having a baby next week. So we'll try to figure something out for you. And then we'll be back after Milano San Remo next weekend. Yeah. Congratulations, Spencer. Good luck. 